Today from the Global Lane, one of the world's most wanted is dead, but Boko Haram's terror continues. How a murdered Nigerian pastor's daughter turned tragedy into victory. What the enemy meant for evil, God turned around for good. Wuhan lab leak? University researchers may know the truth about the origins of COVID-19. We have people who are Americans who have this duty to step up and tell us what they knew. The streets of Chicago were their father, absent dads, and the story of their angry sons raised by criminal gangs. There was no adult male to teach them how to channel that male rage. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. In 2013, a Nigerian girl named Zion screamed and begged for Boko Haram terrorists to spare her father's life as he was dragged from his home and murdered. She overcame the trauma of helplessly witnessing Islamic terrorists brutally spill the blood of her pastor father. She came to the United States, worked hard, and recently spent time serving as a graduate student consultant at the Pfizer company during the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine. Now she's just been awarded a master's degree in applied science. Well, joining us to share her story and more is international human rights attorney Emmanuel Ogebe. Mr. Ogebe is managing partner of the U.S. Nigeria Law Group. Emmanuel, you've helped this woman Zion. It's a wonderful achievement of which I'm sure her father would be proud. So please tell our viewers about what happened to Zion and her father back in May 2013. Yes, thank you very much, um, Gary, for having me. Uh, this is certainly one of the few uh, silver linings in the dark cloud that is uh, Nigeria uh, regarding the persecution of Christians today. Uh, as CBN reported many years ago, her father was a top Christian uh, leader in northeast Nigeria. And, uh, and, you know, he was assassinated by the uh, Boko Haram. Now, Zion herself, uh, was shot that night, and uh, she had to undergo surgery to extract uh, bullet fragments from her head. So this is truly a miracle on so many levels that in the first place she survived, that in the second place she came to America and thrived and bagged a master's, master's degree. Now, guess what, Gary? She graduated the day after the eighth anniversary of the attack on her family and her dad. Wow. wow, that's amazing. Now, I can't imagine going through that, what she went through. But Zion gives God credit for helping her to overcome that tragedy, Emmanuel, and achieve her master's degree. Tell us why she gives God credit. Uh, you know, what the enemy meant for evil, God turned around for good. Uh, and her father was the one taking care of so many orphans uh, of other pastors who were killed. And, and I, I just felt, I said, listen, someone has to step in for him. And if that's the only thing we've done is we put a smile in heaven this week that the body of Christ, you know, came together for the daughter of uh, a man who also cared for others. And so she definitely, you know, is overjoyed. We had a testimonial service in Los Angeles the day after the graduation uh, where she, she sang a song of praise to the Lord. And Gary, get this, three days after the man who ordered the hit on her dad, the head of the terror group Boko Haram, one of the deadliest terrorists on the planet, Abu Shekau, was killed three days after our prayers. They said that he committed suicide, but uh, has anyone seen a body or any evidence of that? Well, 
fortunately, <laughs> there's not going to be a body because uh, he detonated his suicide vest uh, when he was encircled by uh, ISWA, which is uh, ISIS West Africa, a rival faction that broke away from his faction. And, and uh, uh, in addition to informal sources that we have, um, the Associated Press confirmed that, uh, uh, you know, Iswa has actually announced his death. So it's a done deal at this point. Um, he's facing his consequences wherever he is. And I, I doubt that there will be, you know, 70 virgins. He will be very surprised. Yeah, I, I, I doubt that too now. But despite that, Boko Haram is still going strong. Many Nigerian Christians are still under attack daily, not only from Boko Haram terrorists, but also Fulani herdsmen who raid villages, burn churches, kill pastors, women and children. Just this week, uh, we received reports from local leaders that over 27 Christians were killed on Sunday evening, some as they had evening fellowship uh, uh, with other Christians. In the past two weeks, over 200 uh, uh, people have been killed. And Emmanuel, it's harder to get that information out now because I know Nigerian President Buhari has banned Twitter because it blocked him after he posted a threatening tweet. Tell us why he did that. And do you think he'll uh, eventually lift the ban? Well, so here's what happened. General Buhari uh, sent out a tweet basically threatening to commit another genocide against uh, the Southeast, the people of Southeast Nigeria who are majority Christian. And Twitter thought that wasn't a very good thing to threaten his own people, so they deleted it. And so General Buhari deleted Twitter for the entire country. I mean, basically, 33 million people are on Twitter in Nigeria, and he just he said he's now made it a punishable offense for anyone uh, to go on Twitter. Now, 25 years ago this week, I was imprisoned by a, another military dictator because I sent him a fax. Now, Buhari, General Buhari, wants to imprison 33 million Nigerians for a tweet. Uh, things are not going well in Nigeria, and we're asking the Biden uh, administration not to give jets not to give Air Force planes to the Nigerian government next month of July as planned. And we're asking your viewers to write to the White House, write to your congressman, and say, do not give General Buhari those Air Force planes, because he has promised on Twitter to commit genocide. And if we give him those planes, he's going to do exactly what he already threatened he would do. Okay, Emmanuel Ogebe, managing partner of the U.S.-Nigeria Law Group. Thank you, Emmanuel, for sharing that story about Zion and your insights today. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Gary, for your care and concern for the persecuted in Nigeria. We need your prayers. As politicians, academians, scientists, and health officials debate the origins of the COVID-19 virus, former President Donald Trump says China needs to pay for the damage the virus has done to the world. The time has come for America and the world to demand reparations and accountability from the Communist Party of China. We should all declare within one unified voice that China must pay. They must pay. So before demands for COVID-19 reparations are made, shouldn't the world prove that the virus actually originated in the Wuhan lab? Well, our next guest believes some American academians may have the evidence. 
Angela Morabito says university researchers who worked with scientists from the Wuhan Institute of Virology have a moral and patriotic duty to come forward and reveal the truth about what they may know. Ms. Morabito is a spokeswoman and higher education fellow at Campus Reform. Angela, it's so good to see you again. So tell us which universities are you looking at and just how extensive was their involvement with the Wuhan lab? There's collaboration between U.S. colleges and the Wuhan lab that dates back more than a decade. And just by way of example, in 2009, Dr. Xi, who's now known as Batwoman in the Chinese press, who's the head of the Wuhan lab, she was working with the University of Pittsburgh to study how coronaviruses evolve along with their hosts. Uh, in 2013, there was research going on at UC Davis in partnership with the EcoHealth Alliance that uh, set aside the whole genome sequences of two new bat coronaviruses. Uh, but Perhaps the most glaring issue here is that in 2015, there was gain-of-function research going on between researchers at the University of North Carolina and at the Wuhan lab. Now, I'm not saying any of these researchers, any of these professors are bad actors, but we have proof that they worked with bad actors. These are people who have insight into what the Chinese knew and when. They have knowledge of what was going on in the Wuhan lab. And it ought to be a scandal that these people are not just tripping over themselves, trying to come forward and tell the intelligence community, tell the public everything they know about what China could do and when they could do it. Back in the early 70s with Watergate, it was, what did you know and when did you know it? So it appears unlikely, though, that China will be truthful about COVID-19. So how important is it, Angela, that these American researchers come forward and do tell us what they know? This is the missing piece because, look, China has lied about everything about this virus from the very start, including about how and when and where it started. But what these university ties give us is it means that we don't have to be at the mercy of what China tells us about where this disease showed up. We have people who are Americans who have this duty to step up and tell us what they knew, what they saw. And you know what? Maybe what they saw is completely exonerated. I'm not saying this investigation needs to go in any direction. I'm saying these people have facts. And every day that they're not sharing these facts with the intelligence community, it's time we're losing ground and China gains ground to lie about whatever they want. Well, tell us a little bit uh, more about Echo Health, that alliance, and the University of North Carolina. Uh, what was their involvement? What exactly were they doing? Do you know? This was amazing. This was gain-of-function research that was very closely affiliated with researchers at the University of North Carolina. And, you know, what happened in 2015 is amazing. They published this thing about, you know, how coronaviruses can be manipulated. But what's really interesting is that four years later, the head of the EcoHealth Alliance, a man named Peter Daszak, who's been involved with a lot of university researchers, he went on a podcast and he said, you know, coronaviruses are pretty easy to manipulate in a lab. Now, this is the same Peter Daszak who went on and emailed Dr. Fauci uh, in the past year and a half and said, hey, thank you for dispelling the lab leak theory. Thank you for telling people that's not true. When he's the one who was saying that these viruses are easy to manipulate in a lab and that he saw it happen, there is a huge disconnect here. And EcoHealth Alliance has a lot of explaining to do right alongside these universities. Well, it, it is interesting, isn't it? Because they saw it happening. It's like, hmm, maybe... <laughs> Let's connect the dots here. So what response did campus reform get from the universities when you contacted them for comment? 
we got virtually nothing, which is it's terrifying and it's unfortunate. Campus Reform reached out to every single university that said they were affiliated with either the Wuhan Lab or the EcoHealth Alliance. And this was from the Wuhan Lab and the EcoHealth Alliance webpage, right? This was public knowledge. We got exactly one response and it was exonerating. It was actually from the University of Alabama, which directed us to a government report saying, you know, we don't know why the Wuhan Lab is using your name. It's just another lie from that institution. But Alabama had no connection to it. Well, why do you think they're being so secretive about their research and in their, their possible involvement with the Wuhan lab? Universities, unfortunately, have a pattern of being really opaque about their research, whether that's how that research is funded. A lot of it comes from taxpayer dollars, but a lot of it is stuff we work on with partners overseas. And they're also really opaque about their foreign entanglements. We see this in universities refusing to report their foreign gifts and contracts. But whatever they know, they should be knocking on every single door, trying to talk to the intelligence community and, you know, come forward with everything they saw, everything they witnessed, and you know, let the intelligence community do their important work from there. Okay, doing the right thing. Angela Morabito of Campus Reform, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Father's Day is traditionally a time to honor dads, especially those who give of themselves to raise up their children in the way of the Lord. But what about absent dads? What effect does their absence have on their children, especially young boys in need of male guidance and discipline as they move into their teen years and approach adulthood? Here to set us straight is Lee Habib. He's executive producer of the new documentary film, The Streets Were My Father, a story of hopelessness and redemption. Lee, as producer of this film, you saw what happens to young boys who grow up without fathers or with dads who are uninvolved in their lives. So. What do they have in common? What did you discover about these boys? Well, what I discovered was that when they grow up in places where a lot of boys don't have fathers, not that individual boy who doesn't have a father living near other families that do, but when they live in places where there aren't fathers, they find community amongst each other in gangs. And this film takes place in the streets of inner city Chicago. One young African-American male finds his way into gangs, uh, a Latino male, and one who's half black and half white all wanted to fill a void in their lives, all found a family in that gang, and sort of male camaraderie. But there was no adult male to teach them how to channel that male rage, that male anger, and all of that testosterone. And of course, that, that led inevitably to prison. And in and out of prison, these three men went. Well, it, it seems that gang leaders do seek out uh, young boys when they are like nine or 10 years of age, and they become involved in criminal enterprise. Tell us more about what you saw happening in Chicago, where gangs are now responsible for most of the murders there. The average, uh, the murders are now averaging at least two per day in Chicago. Indeed, and it's mostly young men shooting each other, right? And it's not women. I mean, and no one accuses the cops of being anti-men, but, you know, 92% of all inmates are male. And almost all of these inmates are between the ages of 18 and 35. And this is the ages, these are the ages where most violent crime is committed. And the, again, you were right. The older men recruit the younger guys in. They become the padrones, the, uh, the father in absence. And as these guys get older, they become the fathers. And they recruit the young men. Well, there are a lot of single mom households out there where fathers aren't present. Of course, 
the key is men remaining personally involved in their sons' lives, but that's a little more difficult when fathers are separated by distance, say living in another state because of divorce or separation. How can dads be more involved? Well, you know, in the end, they've got to be present. You hear it from all three of these guys, that longing. At the end of the film, we ask them, you know, what, could, what would you say to your father if you had a chance? These guys are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and they're breaking down crying. Be present. And by the way, if somebody doesn't have a father and you live near a boy who doesn't, we as Christians particularly, we can put a body on that boy. We can put a body on him before he becomes a statistic, and we can love him. And that's the charge as Christians anyway of all of us in our churches is to put bodies on these young men and these young women who don't have fathers. We know who they are. They're in our community and they need help. And the valiant single moms who try to do their work and try their best to raise a boy without a father need our help. And FaceTime makes it a little easier nowadays. Uh, dads who are in another state can communicate with their sons on FaceTime. Uh, in all three of these men you profile ended up in prison, as you had mentioned. Let's look at a clip from a segment in the film called A New Beginning. I don't look at it as a time where I was arrested. I said, I was rescued that day. It wasn't until I went to prison, um, after being there again for a few years, decided that, hey, you know what? Enough is enough. Well, there was a void in my life, and then I figured it out. I realized it. It was Jesus. I was missing God in my life. You know, I wanted to totally change my life. I just wanted to turn away from who I was and um, become something new. I had never really thought about was there a God, and if so, who was he? And then it started talking about salvation. It said that everybody can be saved. That God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever would put their faith and trust in him, they would not die eternally, but they would have eternal life. And I thought, man, you know, I want this eternal life. So Lee, how important is faith in turning around the lives of the fatherless? All three of these guys, but for God, they all admit they would have come back again and again and again. God transformed their life. God became the father they never had and gave them the rules of living, the rules of life, and the rules of loving. As Leslie Williams so beautifully put, put at the end of this film, the rules of loving. And it, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. God saves. And by the way, we had letters from all kinds of folks who weren't in prison prison. One executive wrote to us. We had played these on our podcast before they became a film. And he said, you know, I didn't have a father. He told me I would never amount to anything and left. And I worked myself to the bone to prove him wrong. I had two divorces. I had no relationship with my kids. And I had created a prison of my own in a very nice office in a very big city. Thank you for sharing your story and the, these inmate stories. I was an inmate too. I just wasn't in jail. And God freed me from my prison. Wow. Where can people see the film, Lee? They can go to SalemNow.com. That's SalemNow.com and get the film. And remember, Father's Day is a great day for people who had fathers. It's a really tough day for people who don't. Okay, Lee Habib, executive producer of the new documentary film, The Streets Were My Father, a story of hopelessness and redemption. Thanks for setting us straight today. Happy Father's Day, Lee. Same here. The push to impose wokeism on our culture is unrelenting. Now this nonsense is infiltrating official presidential documents.
President Biden's new budget proposal refers to mothers as birthing people. Last time I checked, only biological females could actually give birth to a baby. That's science, folks, biological fact. This latest unprecedented action is another example of how leftists have co-opted this president in efforts to transform American culture. Many Christians are opposing wokeism and cancel culture, and it's likely to be a hot topic of discussion as Southern Baptists nationwide gather for their annual meeting in Nashville. Many believe it's a culture war worth waging. But what's the best way to fight it? In Disney's Pinocchio movie, Jiminy Cricket sings, Always let your conscience be your guide. But we have the best guide of all, the Holy Spirit. And when we're guided by Him, we unite in wisdom, power, and strength. SBC presidential nominee, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary President Albert Moeller urges Southern Baptists to talk to each other rather than to tweet at each other. Social media have their place, but media platforms invite a snarky and angry discourse that poisons our ability to work together. Let's not communicate on Twitter any differently than we would communicate face-to-face. And where possible, let's actually communicate face-to-face with each other before we communicate at each other. Remember that saying that resurfaced in the 1990s, what would Jesus do, WWJD? Well, my guess is if Jesus were in human form today and he were asked to speak at the SBC convention, some attendees would probably kick him out of the convention hall for demanding that they stop spreading hateful political rhetoric on social media. Would Jesus take to social media, and if so, what would he say? I think he would, because he could reach billions of people that way. I doubt he'd post anything political. Instead, Christ would focus on the spiritual. Jesus would speak in parables. He'd remind us that narrow is the road that leads to life. But the road to eternity won't be revealed to people if his followers keep sniping at one another and spreading ungodly messages on social media. Remember, we are his voice, hands and feet for a time such as this. So my message to Southern Baptists and all Christians is this. Keep your feet firmly planted on the rock. Pray together. Be guided by the Holy Spirit. Strive for unity. And remember that we are one in the body of Christ. And always, always let Jesus, not the politics of the day, be your guide. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News Channel, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.